0: It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, we hear from the Wisconsin Tavern League about a proposed state law that could change the way alcohol is produced, distributed, and sold here in Wisconsin. First, a new book looks into connections between leadership in the American Catholic Church and far-right politics. More than a fifth of all Americans identify as Catholic, and they turn out for elections more often than many other groups, 75% in 2016. Our next guest says American bishops and wealthy Catholic donors use their power and influence to, quote, insert their version of Catholicism into aspects of law and society that go beyond religion. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about Catholicism's influence on American politics? Are you a Catholic yourself? Does your faith shape your politics? Do your politics match up with official policies of the church? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Mary Jo McConaughey is a journalist and former war correspondent. She's the author of the new book, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. Mary Jo, welcome to Central Time.
1: Thank you, Rob. I'm really glad to be here.
0: There are a lot of interest groups, of course, in American politics uh, advocating for different changes What made you want to focus on American Catholic bishops and and major donors uh, who agree with them?
1: Two things. I am a Catholic, a lifelong Catholic, what they call a cradle Catholic. That means you were baptized before you had anything to say about it. And uh, I grew up Catholic. And the other important thing is January 6th. As a war correspondent, I had covered coups worked a lot in latin america and like everybody else uh i knew i was watching the events of january 6 in washington with horror uh and trepidation and i began to see many symbols which had been sacred to me my whole life the crucifix images of jesus but with a maga hat on and a lot of lip service to christianity as if this kind of protest and activity were somehow linked with christian values and i just said whoa wait a minute what is going on here and i began to look at my own church and that quickly led to my look at the leadership of the Catholic Church. So that's how this book, Playing God, began.
0: One of the main uh, elements of that leadership is uh, is the group of American bishops. And you say, politically, they're very different from, say, the current pope in the Vatican. Can you uh, tell us what you saw when you started looking into the uh, outward political statements and activities of many American bishops?
1: Yes, many of the U.S. bishops are associated with very right-wing individuals or institutions. Now, it, it goes much farther than that with regard to Pope Francis. From day one, they have dug in their heels as a group, not every single one, but the vast majority against the stands of Pope Francis, including his very, very important message to the world on the environment you know Pope Francis was a scientist before he was a priest he knows global warming is an element of human behavior he wrote an extremely important encyclical called Laudato Si about it who are the only ones to drag their feet on that U.S. Catholic bishops Uh, many archdioceses do have investments in fossil fuels by the way which I talk about but it goes farther than that. You know, his big, that is the Pope's big effort for his papacy is this upcoming Synod on Synodality. Now that sounds like Greek. Well, in fact, it is. It, all it means is taking the same path. And Pope Francis has kind of put a lot of eggs into this basket of asking Catholics, Not just bishops, but Catholics at all levels. What are their aspirations for the church? How do they see the church? This is an extremely important event that's going to start in October. Well, it's already been going on for two years with uh, discernment and talks among Catholics. And the U.S. bishops have not joined, never the, not just the enthusiasm for this, they have not promoted it at all. All of the surveys and the groups of Catholics who have met, uh, who have met have talked about the need to listen to the voices of youth, LGBTQ community, the poor, clergy sex abuse uh, survivors, and and women. And those are not the priorities of the U.S. Catholic bishops. In fact, often with regard, for instance, to LGBTQ, uh, they are as if they were from several centuries ago, and certainly not in the spirit of Pope Francis, who is a pastoral figure, not a doctrinaire figure.
0: I know in polling, rank-and-file Catholics in the United States are really all across the board. Some of the most, uh, I I would say, liberal people in the United States show up uh, among Catholics in polling, all the way to some of the most conservative. How do you see the bishops, the current lineup of Catholic bishops, matching the rank-and-file in the United
1: States politically? With regard to His Holiness the Pope, for instance, there's some huge numbers, such like 80, 85%, I don't know, it's, it's, it's in the book and things I've been writing, who are in favor of Pope Francis, the personality, the person, the policy, the pastoralism. And that even goes over to uh, non-Catholics that they're a majority uh, uh, that, that uh, see him positively. How does this affect rank and file Catholics given that they're bishops are often not only not on uh, Pope Francis's wavelength, but often clearly against him. Some 20 of them once signed a uh, a letter supporting uh, an individual who was calling for Pope Francis to resign, and they've never taken that back. So this, you can imagine, is a cause for confusion, concern among Catholics.
0: Talking to Mary Jo McConaughey, author of the new book, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. You can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Mary Jo, you don't just look at bishops, but also uh, very conservative Catholic uh, activists and donors. I want to focus on the role of one person Uh, with origins here in Wisconsin, uh, Racine, Wisconsin's own Paul Weyrich, not a household name, unless you're in very conservative circles, in which case he's a a transformational figure in some ways. Can you share a little bit of his career and how he fits into the story of your book?
1: Yes. Well, Paul Weyrich was really uh, present at the birth of the religious right in the 1970s. The uh, Catholic Church after Vatican II, that great moment of reform in the Catholic Church in the 1960s was not quote unquote Catholic enough for Paul Weyrich. And he insisted that we, that is the United States, go back to whatever his view was of the vision of the founding fathers, which was a Christian nationalist view. That is very little separation between church and state. Paul Weyrich was probably responsible. This is what Grover Norquist uh, uh, says, who's another great right-wing conservative figure, for some of the most important organizations, a co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, of the uh, Congressional Wednesday Lunch, of many others. i named some of them in uh, the chapter on him. that uh, gave birth to the right-wing Christian movement. And what importantly Paul Weyrich did was associate abortion as the prime issue for Catholic bishops. In other words, what he did was he realized that he couldn't do it alone and that abortion was not The only issue that was going, or rather, it was not the engine that could get everybody involved in returning us to what he believed the founding father's vision was. And so he went down to talk to Jerry Falwell, who was a very important Christian broadcaster. At that time, the Christian broadcasters and many other Christians were warring against Brown versus the Board of Education with their own private schools. They did not want integration. Paul Weirich says to Jerry Falwell, look, we can go back to the world of our founding fathers, but we need the foot soldiers that your people can provide. Segregation is not an attractive issue. Abortion is an important issue. And... From there on, he said, We need to be a moral majority and we can do it. Well, the rest is history. That was the beginning of the religious right in the United States. And I should say that, with regard to the abortion issue, of course, Pope Francis is against abortion. But unlike the US bishops, he believes that it is not. The most important, that is the, the only important pro life issue, that just as important are capital punishment, euthanasia, care for the poor, the environment, and that is not the stand of the US bishops.
0: Mary Jo McConaughey is a journalist, former war correspondent, and author of the book we're talking about, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. You can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Tell us your thoughts on American religious leadership and its role in politics. If you are a current or former Catholic yourself, love to hear your perspective on the role uh, your fellow parishioners play in politics on church leadership and American politics. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at wpr.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with author Mary Jo McConaughey about her new book, Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. You could join in at 800-642-1234 with your questions about American Catholicism, how it fits into politics, your observations, maybe your experiences as a Catholic yourself, 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Mary Jo, one issue that's been another point of contention between bishops here in the U.S. and Pope Francis, communion for politicians who support abortion, affecting, among others, a Catholic President Joe Biden. Can you talk a little bit about how this issue has played out?
1: Yes, when Biden was elected president, the Catholic bishops proposed among themselves to issue a letter forbidding him communion because of his uh, stand to obey the laws which were then in force that is, Roe versus Wade, even though Biden is practicing Catholic. Uh, it took a real slapdown uh, from the Vatican to prevent the bishops from doing that. Nevertheless, individual bishops, for instance, the bishop of the place where I live, San Francisco, has forbidden Nancy Pelosi, a lifelong Catholic and uh, important uh, leader, and, uh, uh, from going to communion in this archdiocese. Uh, She does, she is, uh, 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 she does go to Holy Communion in other places, uh, and maybe even here for all I know. Uh, And Dick Durbin, the, um, from Illinois, has also been forbidden communion in his own parish. Uh, This is not the way of Pope Francis. Pope Francis, besides emphasizing that pro-life issues are equally important, said, I have never, this is the pope speaking, I have never refused the Eucharist to anyone. That is not his way. It's a very important uh, uh, um, event in the life of a Catholic. He has never refused it to anyone. But by hooking themselves to the abortion issue, the bishops have also hooked themselves to the Republican Party for the last 20 some years, 25 years. And that's why one of my concerns about the hegemony of the bishops is that they are a threat to democracy by identifying with what the Republican Party has become. That's and that. It, that continues even with the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade.
0: Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Tom is with us in Madison. Tom, hi.
1: Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call.
2: I'm kind of looking back at some of the more progressive Catholic uh, churches and elementary schools. I remember George Carlin talking about going to a very progressive school, Catholic school in New York in the 50s. I went to Catholic school in Chicago in the 60s and early 70s. And I distinctly remember uh, having to debate the Vietnam War from both sides in seventh and eighth grade. Now, today, we can't even read a book about it without, you know, committing some kind of political fervor. Um, I would like to go back to those days. I'm really tired of the idea where the conservatives have usurped uh, Jesus and the flag. Uh, it's, there's nothing conservative about either one of those.
0: Tom, thanks for the call. Mary Jo, do you see that swing from a more progressive era, at least in part of American Catholicism, uh, t- until today?
1: Absolutely, with regard to the bishops. That is, during the 80s, and I talk about this somewhat extensively, during the 80s, the U.S. bishops were a force for resistance to certain policies of the U.S. government, such as, for instance, uh, uh Uh, allegiance to, uh, or rather, support for dictators in Central America. I was covering Central America at the time. I met the bishops who came down there and to see for themselves, and they went home and made a joint stand against President Reagan's involvement on the, clearly, what they believe was the wrong size in Central America. They were against nuclear disarmament in the 80s the bishops made a very important joint letter about the economy during the 1980s in which they insisted on attention to the poor. This is a time of neoliberalism. And they said, no way, you've got to watch out for everybody. It's not just about getting ahead economically. All of that filtered into the schools, and so the kind of teachers we had and programs we had and the kind of things that Tom talks about, were this was the way we were raised. And that's why it is rather a, a shock to the mind when we start looking at what the current bishops stand for.
0: Thanks for that call, Tom. Mary joins us now in Harpers Ferry, Iowa. Mary, Hello.
2: Hi, thanks for
0: taking my call. What did you want to ask about?
2: Well, I was just wondering...
0: um... Oh, uh, we lost our connection with Mary there. Uh, She was asking about uh, societies, uh, fraternities of uh, conservative Catholics in the United States. She had a specific one in mind. I I guess I didn't get that. Uh, Mary Jo, can you talk about organizations that might unite uh, some of the conservative uh, Catholic groups you're talking about?
1: Yes, they exist. Uh, And I talk about them in my, um, uh, I talk about them in my book. They are not so many, but the ones that do exist, uh, for instance, one of them is called Opus Dei, that's an international, it's not just the United States. And while they are few in number, they are very influential. The Opus Dei Center in Washington, D.C., for instance, is a meeting place of, Um, fervent Catholics, for instance, Bill Barr, uh, Cipollone, the advisor to President Trump, uh, Kellyanne Conway, uh, and the uh, outgoing president of the United States Conference of Bishops uh, is a member of, uh, uh, of Opus Dei. So they are few in number, but very influential in what they do. By the way, there are also Many groups, in fact, they're getting stronger and stronger, partly out of resistance to the uh, bishops of groups of what you might call liberal Catholics uh, or progressive Catholics or Vatican II Catholics, that is people who are following the principles that were put forth by the Vatican II events. Uh, there are even some two hundred, and I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's it's in the book, two hundred and eighty or so uh, ordained women priests now. Uh, not all Americans, but most of them Americans. So just as there are very conservative uh, groups of, uh, uh, of of Catholics, there are uh, who are who kind of punch above their weight. With regard to um, uh, their influence, uh, among, you know, laterally among politicians, for instance, there are also other groups uh, of Catholics who are kind of of rooting for Vatican II principles and are very pro-Francis. What's really concerning about this is that it kind of it it, it, it kind of smacks of a bit of a schism of the in the Catholic Church, which frankly, nobody, nobody wants.
0: Mary Jo, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: That's journalist Mary Jo McConaughey. She joined us for a look at her new book. It's called Playing God, American Catholic Bishops and the Far Right. Coming up after the news, a lobbyist for the Wisconsin Taver League joins us for a look at a new bill that would change alcohol rela- regulations in the state, some laws going back nine decades. I'm Rob Ferrett. This is Central Time on the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferrett. Coming up, we hear from the author of the new book, The Pornography Wars, the past, present, and future of America's obscene obsession. Now, on Tuesday, there was a public hearing for Assembly Bill 304, which would overhaul regulations on Wisconsin's alcohol industry, changing some laws that go back 90 years. Among other things, the bill would clarify current laws, add new permits, open up options for wineries and craft breweries to sell their products directly, and establish a dedicated alcohol enforcement agency within the Department of Revenue. We're going to hear from one of the stakeholders now, the state's Tavern League, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. What, if anything, do you think ought to change about the way we produce, distribute, and or sell alcohol in Wisconsin? Have you been watching this bill? What concerns do you have about it? And if you are in business anywhere along that supply chain. Love to hear from you, what changes you'd like to see, what your concerns might be about how this could impact your business. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Scott Stengers, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. Scott, welcome to Central Time.
3: Yeah, thanks, Rob. Good to be here.
0: Before we dig into the bill, uh, it's pretty obvious in the name, but can you talk about who you represent there at the Tavern League, What are the many players in this bill?
3: Yeah, I represent small mom-and-pop operators uh, throughout the state of Wisconsin that are uh, involved with their business on a day-to-day basis and uh, proud to, to work in their communities. They give back to their communities and you know have been a uh, an established uh, player in the alcohol industry for years.
0: I think it's fair to say that everybody, or many people, at least the alcohol business, have thought for a while now that something needed to change in our alcohol laws. uh what can you talk about the need for some kind of update?
3: Well, I can say this it isn't too often that we have agreement with all tiers and all players in the industry, uh but this bill uh, has brought everybody together. We needed to modernize and to update and to put a robust regulatory uh, agency in place so that we can execute uh, what what jobs we have to do on whatever tier we are and have certainty that the laws are going to be enforced. And so it's been a long time coming. This bill has taken really the better part of 10 years. And I think it's going to be positive for all the tiers, but more importantly, positive for the public because we will have some certainty and more a direction with regard to regulating alcohol in the state.
0: Now you mentioned the tiers there, T-I-E-R-S. Uh, I think a lot of even alcohol consumers in Wisconsin may not know what's going on behind the scenes. Can you talk about our three-tier system in Wisconsin and how it currently works?
3: Sure. Every state has this. Uh, we have, since the repeal of Prohibition, uh, three tiers. You have to pick the tier you want to be in. So we have manufacturers, uh wholesalers and retailers so the product is manufactured it's distributed by the wholesalers and then uh, distributed to the public at the retail level so those are what are referred to as the three-tier system
0: and one of the big changes is we've got these craft breweries uh, micro distilleries wineries who would like to manufacture their stuff and sell it at least locally in real retail outlets or might want to distribute it to a tavern or a store without necessarily having that relationship with a distributor. Does this change in laws affect that?
3: Yeah, it's going to it's going to make a variety of changes. The law was pretty frigid with regard to uh, it, it, In fact, it just didn't envision much of a craft industry when much of this law was put together. So Uh, We're going to make changes that I believe will benefit uh, the ability of wineries, distilleries, and craft brewers uh, to have their product more available throughout the state, uh, including at uh, taverns and uh, at their retail stores. So it will make significant changes in that regard, uh, but we're seeing an evolution of this uh, sector, which again, every state has experienced something similar to this.
0: Talking to Scott Stenger with the Tavern League of Wisconsin looking at a proposed state law in the works that's, that would change the way alcohol is regulated in Wisconsin. You could join in at 800-642-1234 if, if you have questions about what's going on or if your business involves brewing or distilling or fermenting alcoholic beverages or distributing said products or serving them up to the public, join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Scott, for the taverns you work with, uh, what does this change for them? What stands out to you the most?
3: Well, you know, I think the biggest thing is certainty that the laws that we understand are going to be enforced. And, to have a viable, credible industry, you have to have belief and certainty that the laws are going to be applied evenly across the board uh, in Superior and Kenosha. And, you know, we haven't seen that over the last five to 10 years. So I think to us, that's the biggest thing. We look to the state as a resource, as do municipalities. Uh, This is complicated. There's a lot of Uh, behind-the-scenes work that goes on with the state lawyers on a lot of these laws. And we want to make certain that we know what uh, the interpretation of the law is, as well as municipal officials. I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten calls from municipal officials looking for guidance, and we want to be able to have that guidance really come from the Department of Revenue in this new Division of Alcohol regulation.
0: Just heard uh, in the news from the other side of the glass here, a statewide bartender license. What would that look like? How would that change things for, again, your tavern owner members?
3: Yeah, that's going to make things a lot easier, especially now when we've seen the job market has gotten so tight. It really doesn't make sense to have 1,700 municipalities issuing these licenses. Now, this doesn't take away the ability of them to issue it. They can still do it. But for... The tavern owner having a an employee who can use that license and Superior and Eau Claire makes it better uh, for them and it's more uh, effective for our employment uh, in an area where we have a lot of uh, over uh, a lot of members who don't have enough uh, staff. So it will provide uniformity. Doesn't take away the ability of locals to do it. But I think it'll just be a modernization of saying, hey, these people have completed the course, they're qualified, and they can bartend anywhere in the state.
0: That's Brianna Caller at 800-642-1234. Ron is with us in Manitowoc. Ron, hi.
2: Thanks, Rob. Um, I'm wondering uh, what your guest and his association is doing to uh, pass on the use of the addictive drug alcohol from the taxpayers. Onto his association members and the brewers and distillers.
0: In the form, Ron, of of some kind of tax, you're saying?
2: Absolutely. We have the second lowest beer tax, $2 a barrel, and some states have over $13 a barrel.
0: Ron, thanks for the call. Uh, Scott, uh, he broke up a little bit there, but Ron's saying, hey, increase uh, the beer tax uh, and maybe other alcohol taxes to account for the health impacts, health costs related to alcohol.
3: Well, that's not part of this bill, and I mean, that debate is a fair debate, and it's one that the legislature uh, has had over the years, but it's not part of this package.
0: Ron, thanks for that call at 800-642-1234. Uh, related to uh, safety and alcohol, the Safe Ride program, partly funded by the uh, the Tavern League, and a change uh, in the law related to that. What's going on there?
3: Well, this is a great story. It's a It's a program that's been replicated around the country and what's in this bill is more funding and the funding comes from convictions of OWI so there's no state money it comes from an uh, someone who received or it, it gets an OWI and that conviction part of their fine the program has been very successful and we've seen a reduction in OWI convictions which is a good thing but over the years that has meant less funding because that's one of our major funding sources. So this bill increases that $25. We think we will have a uh, the ability to fund safe rides, continue to fund them and expand them uh, throughout the state. So we've seen a real change, a positive change. People are planning ahead. They're using uh, Uber, they're using Lyft and uh, they're using our safe ride program. So This has been a tremendously successful program, and having more funding in it uh, uh, complements what we're doing out there today.
0: Scott Stenger is with us, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. We're talking about a new bill that would transform how we regulate the production, distribution, and sale of alcohol here in Wisconsin. It is in the state legislature on a a fast track of sorts right now. Want to hear from you at 800 One, two, three, four. Do you have questions about how all this works, how laws might change? Do you have opinions, changes you would like to see if you own a business that deals with alcohol, a a brewery, distillery, winery, if you uh, own a tavern, work at a tavern? How about a wedding barn? This affects uh, those uh, outfits as well. Join in with your thoughts, your concerns at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation, maybe hear from you coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrette. We're picking up our talk now with Scott Stenger, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. He's here to offer his organization's perspective on a new bill that would change how the alcohol industry is regulated in Wisconsin. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have as maybe an alcohol consumer yourself? Or if you are in the business, have you ever held an event at a barn venue? How is alcohol handled in that situation? What significant changes have you seen in the alcohol industry over the last decade? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Let's go back to your calls now. Chris is with us in rural Blanchardville. Chris, hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. What did you want to bring up, Chris?
2: Well, I'm really concerned that the one group that seems to have been left out of the conversation, and I do applaud this compromise, I do think we need to update the the regulation, but wedding barns and rural communities don't seem to have been a part of the conversation. Um, In towns like mine, uh, a town of 800, it's really important for us to have unique niche agricultural operations like wedding barns. And this bill put a lot more regulation, is would would put a lot more regulation on them.
0: And Chris, are you involved with uh, with tourism or wedding barns in your community?
2: Well, I run a bed and breakfast on my sheep farm. Um, So I don't really necessarily rely on wedding barns, but I have so many friends who are farmers who are trying to make it by adding a wedding barn or some other ag tourism operation to their farm. And this is a huge blow to that community. The proposal in here limits the amount of time, the, the amount of weddings you can have. It makes it harder to weddings, and it that you have to have an actual alcohol license.
0: Chris, thanks a lot for the call. And, Scott, I think if there's one sector related to alcohol that feels like they're left out of this, as Chris says, it is this, this wedding barn industry, a lot of gray areas up to this point. Uh, what's, uh, what's your thought on that part of this agreement?
3: Well, they're not left out at all. Uh, the bill takes great steps to make sure that they can get a license. It allows 16 months to get a license. But, I mean, let's be honest here. This is alcohol. It's the wild west at wedding barns. They have no regulations. We're not talking about a handful of wedding barns out there. There's hundreds of them. The public demands that people are licensed, they know what they're doing. And when you're selling alcohol and have alcohol, it's a serious proposition. And we had, I heard the testimony yesterday uh, from some wedding barn owners and they say, oh, we do this, 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 everything that we're doing. So what is the problem? You're, you're you're telling us you're doing all the things that licensure requires. The public expects that you should have some minimum standards at your business. These are businesses and it is the wild west. They have no closing hours, they can have smoking, they have no licensed bartenders, nobody checking IDs. They need to be regulated. And this bill goes over the top to make sure none of them would, would go out of business and it creates for small venues that have said, we only do a handful of events a year. It creates a special non-sale permit so that they can do six events a year, not more than one a month. And that was something we heard from the wedding barn industry. So you can't be a business making hundreds of thousands of dollars and then say, we don't wanna be licensed. The Tavern League would support no licensure for everybody. I mean, that's a ridiculous proposal. You're in business you have laws to follow, the public demands that you follow the same laws that the rest of us do. And you can get a license and compete with the rest of the uh, folks in the industry. If you choose not to have alcohol, this bill doesn't affect you.
0: Chris, thanks a lot for that call. Marty joins us next in West Allis. Marty, hi.
2: Hi, good afternoon. So uh, I'm an elected official in my community and sat on our, on our license board for bartending licenses and have a 40-plus year history in the restaurant business. And I'm wondering if the state is issuing bartender's licenses, uh, would there be any minimum standards? Say, would a license be issued
0: to an individual with multiple drunk driving? And if an individual were doing their job incorrectly, would there, how would the revocation process work for a, a licensed bartender? Great questions, Marty. Scott, uh, your thoughts on how that might work?
3: Yeah, that's all already spelled out in state statute, the requirements to obtain a bartender license. So you, you have to meet all those requirements. And if you don't, as Marty said, you won't get it. A, a habitual law offender would not be eligible to be licensed, whether it's at the local level or the state level. So we don't change any of the licensing requirements in this bill. We just allow to have a portable uh, operator's permit, bartender's license, that the state can issue. And from a lot of municipalities that we've heard from, and I'm not saying it's everybody, but issuing a license takes time and there's a cost. So this would alleviate some of that burden that municipalities currently have to go through with uh, the issuance of these operators' permits.
0: Thanks for that call, Marty. Scott, something I don't know, can a local government, could Marty's board in uh, West Dallas say, we're going to have more stringent regulations on our bartender licenses uh, than the state does uh, now, or under that the new bill.
3: No, they have the requirements are that you're a U.S. citizen, 18, you have to complete the responsible beverage server course, and not be a habitual law offender. So, if you check all those boxes, then the license uh, shall be issued. So, there's really not a lot of discretion. We're we're the standards are there to weed out bad actors, and that will continue, and it just makes it easier. municipalities and it makes it easier for employers and it helps with employees you become more employable when you have a portable bartender's license that you can use all over the county or all over the state
0: thanks again for that call marty at 800-642-1234 talking to scott stanger lobbyist with the tavern league of wisconsin looking at a slate of changes likely in the works at least a big bill in the state legislature when it comes to how the alcohol industry is regulated here in wisconsin let's go back to your calls bob is with us in milwaukee bob hi
2: hey a quick question um so my my dad when i was a little kid he uh he was friends with a alcohol distributor that sort of middle tier that your guest was talking about and I guess it's been my understanding, and maybe I'm way off on this, but it's my understanding. I hear a lot of language about competitiveness and this and that, but at the end of the day, if you're a distributor for a brand alcohol in a region, that's yours, and nobody can touch you. And there may be, you know, it may be that there's more than one, perhaps, but generally speaking, it's the most strangely regulated kind of. It's a business, but it's a monopoly at the same time. And by the way, as far as that wild west comment about the barns. I mean, my goodness gracious, we we want to regulate the heck out of alcohol, but none out of guns? What the heck?
0: Bob, thanks for the call. We don't need to go into guns, Scott. But uh, does the three-tier system, in effect, as Bob says, uh, give a monopoly to a distributor in a region if they're the only one who could distribute, you know, whatever, Rob, brand, beer?
3: Yeah, no, it, it's a good point. It It gives statutory protection. In territories for wholesalers, and and it's not unique to Wisconsin. Most every state in the country has it. Doesn't mean that a retailer can't get a product outside of that territory. It's unusual, but but Bob's right. It does essentially have a monopoly. Now, with that, those wholesalers have to agree to service. They service the small as large as long as well as the large accounts, and they have to make sure they service everybody, and everybody is treated uniformly. So the trade off is we have good service we have uniform treatment and we're getting product into the small rural taverns in Wisconsin so uh, it's an area that's uh, raised some concern but overall over the last you know 40 50 years it's worked fairly well
0: bob thanks a lot for that call scott a lot of this obviously is uh, hugely important to people uh, who are in the business of alcohol for consumers. If this law passes as currently written, are people going to see a lot of difference at the the liquor store, the grocery store, the tavern, you name it?
3: You know, I don't think they're going to see a lot uh, initially, um, but I think there will be a better sense, uh, especially the sharing of information from the state level. And the, and the secretary now, Secretary Barca and his staff, have done a very good job of getting information out to the retailers, to the wholesalers and manufacturers as well as municipalities. So I don't think they're going to see a a real big change but it will help to make sure we have a positive, strong environment uh, for the regulation of alcohol beverages.
0: Just a last minute, something we've touched on a couple times, this new agency in the Department of Revenue. What are your hopes for uh, what that might do when it comes to statewide regulation and enforcement of these laws?
3: Well, it's a great Point and that that's what this whole bill is about. Everyone in the industry looks to a referee and we want that referee to give us consistent, solid advice. And we're going to follow the law. Our members are going to follow the law, but we need to know what it is. And we need to be able to work with them. Communication is the most important and effective tool here, not just communication that our folks have with the department, but also us being able to communicate with municipalities. Uh, and with the general public. So I think the way this bill, and again, it took a long time to put together, but I think the results of it are going to produce effective, smart regulation uh, in this state.
0: Scott, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today.
3: Yep, thanks a lot, Rob.
0: That's Scott Stenger, Director of Government Affairs for the Tavern League of Wisconsin. He joined us for a discussion about a new bill that would change the way alcohol is regulated here in Wisconsin. Still time for you to share your thoughts. You can email ideas at WPR.org. If there's a part of this bill you're concerned about, would like to see more reporting or hear more conversation about, if this influences your business as you see it for better or for worse, love to hear from you. You can email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, get a preview of a new documentary on Pride Month and its history here in Wisconsin. That's coming up tomorrow morning at 8 here on the Ideas Network. Remember, you can follow all of these conversations anytime. Stream live online at WPR.org or download the Wisconsin Public Radio app. And if you miss a conversation or there's something you want to share with a friend, or an enemy, you could find those archived. Again, WPR.org or on the Wisconsin Public Radio app. I learned to drive with stick shift cars. I had a few rough moments with my dad's truck, stalled it out a couple few times. Then I had a dream about driving it, never had a problem again. Nowadays, most cars are automatic transmission instead of manual. But if you're feeling nostalgic, one of the cars of the future may let you recreate that experience with a fake manual transmission. As reported in the Wall Street Journal, an electric vehicle in the works from Toyota would have a manual transmission simulator. You shift gears, the engine revs, just like the real thing except the electric engines don't actually need you to shift with the gears. It's all for the experience. Still up in the air, a possible feature that would stall the car if you get it wrong. Now, I'm glad I learned to drive on a manual transmission. Still comes in handy from time to time. I don't feel nostalgic enough to buy a car that fakes the experience. If you do, you'll have to wait till 2026 for those models to hit the market. Stalling for time. This is Central Time.